Curious what the idea of co-responsibility for the church's being and acting might mean for both the lady and the ordained? Join us for an academic and pastoral conference at Notre Dame this March, March 4th through 6th, to explore this idea further. For more details and a complete list of speakers, visit mcgrath.nd.edu slash co-responsible, all one word. And welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. Good to be with you, Ashley. Hello, good to be with you. Did you get outside this weekend? Did I? It, I did. It Unseasonably so, warm in New was. York. We were it in was. the 60s. It was like 60s. I walked like 10 miles on Saturday, I think. Did like Brooklyn Bridge Park, across the Brooklyn Bridge, Rockefeller Center. It was great. That's awesome. And you yeah. had your dad visiting, yeah? So some good some good weather for your dad. Yeah. I thought the unseasonably warm weather uh, was appropriate given our, uh, our drink, drink choice this yes. week. Um, this is called the Chilton, which I saw described in Texas Monthly as sunshine in a glass. So even it's no it's, longer sunny. Yeah. <laughs> even though it's January, uh, we want to thank listener Isaiah Lucio Lopez for uh, recommending this drink to us this week. So cheers. Cheers. What is in this drink? Do you want to? Mm. That's delicious. It is uh, vodka, lemon juice, and seltzer yeah. <laughs> and a salt rim. So simple, sweet. No, not sweet. Yeah. A, whole, a little tangy. Yeah, a little tangy. <laughs> All right. Who are we talking to today? Today, we are talking to Jonathan Smith and Laura Weiss. They are part of the Slavery, History, Memory, and Reconciliation Project, a joint endeavor between the Jesuits USA Central and Southern Province and St. Louis University. Yeah, this project researches the lived experience of enslaved adults and children whom the Jesuits owned at one point. And we've talked about this issue before. Georgetown University um, in the past couple of years has had its own um, memory and reconciliation project. But this is a history that is not confined to to one province. It was. No, definitely not. It's it's very widespread throughout the Jesuits and throughout the Catholic Church. So we just thought it was important to keep unpacking this topic and see how other institutions and how other groups are grappling with this complicated history. But first, Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. So Cardinal Robert Sarah, a Ghanaian cardinal, is releasing a book on priestly celibacy following the Synod on the Amazon, where the possibility of ordaining married men uh, to serve in remote areas of the Amazon was raised. Um, And he presents in this book a very firm defense of priestly celibacy. Of keeping priestly celibacy. Um, Also contributing to this book, uh, at least in some fashion, is Emeritus Pope Benedict XVI. And that's when things got complicated. So the the origins of this book are a little bit messy. Um, We know that Cardinal Sarah and Pope Benedict had been in conversation about this and that Pope Benedict had been wanting to write about the vocation of priesthood as it relates to celibacy. But then news broke on Monday that this was co-authored between Pope Benedict XVI and Cardinal Robert Sarah, not Pope Emeritus <laughs> Benedict, but it came under the Pope's name, giving the impression that we had, you know, two popes talking about the issue at the same time. Right, which is complicated for a number of reasons. Catholicism, pretty traditionally, one pope, one guy at the top. <laughs> but the following day, so this Tuesday, uh, when we're recording it, uh, Benedict's personal secretary, Archbishop Georg Ganswein, told several news agencies that the Pope Emeritus had requested to have his name removed as the co-author of the book. Right, and before that, 
or on Tuesday as well, Cardinal Sarah at first released a formal statement calling the doubts that people were raising about the authorship of the book slander. But then after the statement from Ganspine, Sarah said that the uh, Pope Benedict would no longer be put as an author on the cover, but he would still be listed as a contributor to so the book. It does seem that Benedict has written something. Uh, it's it, unclear how long it is. He's contributed something to the book, and so he's still listed as, as a contributor. So there's a debate about what the proper role of the Pope Emeritus is. So, you know, we, we haven't had a retired Pope in many hundreds of years. So Pope Benedict is kind of like making up the rules as he goes. Um, and he uh, initially said that when he went into retirement that he would be, quote unquote, hidden from the world. Um, but that hasn't really been the case. He's written articles before. He's made statements. And now he has contributed to this book um, in some way, even if he's not the co-author of it. That's right. But also the issue at hand is on the question of celibacy in the priesthood. Right. And we should be clear about what we're not talking about, which is getting rid of celibacy for priesthood and the Latin rite of the church across the board. Right. right? Um, it was proposed at the Synod on the Amazon that in re remote regions of the Amazon where people can go months without seeing a priest, which means months without access to the sacraments, the possibility of ordaining married men to that ministry. Right. And on this point, it, there it's not clear that Pope Francis and Pope Benedict have much space between them. Um, Pope Francis has described priestly celibacy as a gift to the church and has no intention of getting rid of celibacy writ large, but is open to the idea of maybe considering it in this very extreme pastoral instance. Um, and Pope Benedict himself has taken into consideration pastoral concerns in the past by um, he was the one who let in um, a number of Anglican and other Protestant um, priests who had been married and wanted to come into communion with the Catholic Church. So there are now married priests in the Latin Rite. Right. And then there not to mention the other rites within the Catholic Church that also have married priests. So it's a complicated issue. And the good news is that inside the Vatican, one of our sister podcasts here at America uh, goes really deep into this topic this week. And so if you want to learn more about uh, What's behind this story? One of our, our Vatican correspondent, Jerry O'Connell, was deeply involved in reporting this and sourcing this story. So to get a firsthand account, or at least a secondhand account, <laughs> of what's been going on, jump over to Inside the Vatican in your feeds now. Okay. What's our next story, Zach? So our next story comes from Texas, where the state's Catholic bishops, that's all of them, have written a statement decrying Governor Greg Abbott, who is a Catholic, his decision to not allow new refugees to be settled in the state. Right. So President Trump uh, recently signed an executive order that gave states the right to opt out of refugee resettlement. So this is these are refugees that have already been approved to enter the United States, you know, under the Trump administration. But even though they've been vetted, states can say that they do not want to settle them. And Texas, I believe, is the first state to to make this decision. Yeah. And we've as a country have been resettling fewer and fewer and fewer refugees. For the numbers are staggering. Yes, a it's, number of years now. Yeah, so President Trump set the cap at 18,000 uh, for this year, and under Obama it was over 100,000, and last year it was 30,000. So it's been steadily going down. Um, and it was a Catholic position that 100,000 was not enough at right, the time. Correct. And and as you mentioned before, the, the governor of Texas is Catholic. His wife is also Catholic and the granddaughter of Mexican immigrants. Um, so the the bishops are really, you know, bringing their 
moral authority to bear <laughs> on this issue. Um, yeah, and this clearly isn't an issue limited to Texas, right? Refugees are set- resettled all over the country. And I was really inspired by an example from Minnesota where the Catholic bishops there have teamed up with their Lutheran counterparts issuing a letter, open letter of support, urging protection for refugees and other people seeking uh, resettlement. And it seems like this is an issue where bishops are finding sort of like a unified common voice that's allowing them to not just like reach across to one another, but across ecumenical lines, too. So what's our next story, Zach? So our next story comes from Spain, where the Catholic Church there has launched an optional two to three year long marriage prep course uh, for people who are seeking to get married in the Catholic Church. All right. So some context on this. This is in Spain, where the divorce rate is pretty high. it's um, There are 57 divorces for every 100 marriages, and less and less people are deciding to get married in the church. Um, so the church was, you know, looked at the situation and came up with a pastoral response. Uh, it's pretty daunting. <laughs> two, two to three two years. To three, yeah. It used to be 20 hours. That's so a big leap. Um, I think 20, and I think 20 hours is probably about what's required here. Yeah. So, yeah, what was your, you've recently gone through marriage prep. What did you think when you saw the story? Well, first, I in general, have had a very positive experience with marriage prep. I know that is not universally shared. But I've also talked to some people who weren't even, who aren't Catholic, but were getting married in the church, who found a lot of really beneficial things from marriage prep, like things that um, really all couples could benefit from. It's not just the theology of the sacrament of marriage, right? So the church is interested in helping you deal with the practical realities of married life, of sharing your life with someone. So like finances, conflict resolution, talking about what values you're bringing from your family. Which ones do you want to bring into your new family? Like, these are all things that lots of couples could benefit from. But it's a really compressed course. Yeah, my parents, uh, growing up, my parents uh, were pre-Cana counselors. So we would have married or engaged couples coming over to our house for, you know, a couple months at a time. Um, And I would sit at the kitchen table and listen in. (laughs) Oh, just eavesdrop? (laughs) Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, my, both my parents are accountants, so they, they much more enjoyed the, the financial discussions about, you know, keeping a budget. Do you get a joint checking account? Do you not? Um, so it's, it, and it's interesting because, okay, let's just take priesthood for an example as a vocation that you prepare for, uh, years and years and years of prep go into that, right? Right. Um, marriage, also a vocation that you are committed <laughs> to for life, yeah. uh, you want, you know, want a little more than 20 hours. Yeah, Two to three is a lot. When you, when you compare all the time that goes into prepping just for the wedding day, yes. you'd think that maybe at least that much time should be spent prepping for the rest of your life after the wedding day. Yes. Now, other other the flip side of this is I have encountered and I know other people have definitely encountered what appear to be just red tape and rules and regulations that uh, seem to be rules for the sake of rules and so Mm. look like barriers to getting married in the church. So I really like that this was sort of optional, that this was pitched as an optional course because Mm. um, that's just the word. I I think that's going to drive more people away from the church, right? Like people are already opting to not get married for um, various reasons. If they see a three-year waiting period (laughs) uh, standing between them, I I don't know if that's going to bring people back. Right. I imagine that this is something a lot of our listeners could relate to, whether they've gone through marriage prep themselves or whether they've been um, made of honor in a wedding and had to like sort of accompany someone dealing with church regulations. <laughs> yes. um, so listeners, what do you think? Would you like something like this, a two to three year course f- from the church to help you in your marriage? Or is this a little too much? 
Let us know. Send us an email at jesuitical at americamedia.org. Joining us via Skype are Dr. Jonathan Smith and Laura Weiss, researchers for the Slavery, History, Memory, and Reconciliation Project, a joint endeavor of the Jesuits of the United States and Canada and St. Louis University. Welcome to Jesuitical. Thanks for having us. So I think a lot of people might find this shocking that the Catholic Church and the Jesuits are included in that, own slaves here in the United States. I thought maybe you could just start by answering to what extent were the Jesuits involved in slaveholding? So I think what one of the ways that I actually like to start answering that question is to um, try to get everyone to realize how completely ubiquitous slavery was and how present it was in the United States and how central it was to building the new world. It shouldn't be surprising that anybody was involved in slaveholding. So every institution that you can imagine was involved with slavery. I see. So, but are we talking like thousands of slaves, hundreds of slaves? So at present right now, um, a lot of our research is focused especially on um, what became the Missouri province, uh, but so the central and southern United States. Uh, and just right now, over the last three years of this work, uh, we've been able to identify at least 190 individuals that were owned, rented, or borrowed by Jesuits in the United States, and that number continues to grow as this research continues. Um, And that's only between 1823, when the Jesuits established their their mission in St. Louis uh, and Florissant in Missouri. Um, So that number includes individuals who labored in in Missouri, in Kentucky, uh, Louisiana, Alabama. So that's just one piece, I think, of this of this story. Maybe we just take a step back and could you talk about what the, maybe the impetus behind this project is or what the scope of the project is? So, so the project started, um, in 2016. So I, I, I work, serve as the, the vice president for diversity and community engagement at St. Louis university. And I was early in my tenure in this position when I um, let my president know that I thought it was really important for for the university to do research and uncover the history of slavery at the university. In 2016, all we knew were the first names of the first six enslaved people who were brought here mm. in 1823. Can you talk a little bit about what what the experience of the enslaved people who were who were owned or borrowed by the Jesuits, what what it was like? Was it any different than any other? enslaved experience? That's an excellent question. Um, I think to begin, again, there was just nothing unusual about the experiences of enslaved people who were enslaved here in St. Louis by the Jesuits. So they were involved in every sort of occupation you might imagine being needed to support a university and a parish. People did do agricultural work, they did do construction work. Um, they did domestic work. We were talking about fewer than 200 people over a 40 or so year period. Um, these were people who worked in in small family groups. So the people who were who who worked as slaves here 
were a few kind of close-knit family groups. So these were families who lived and worked together, even though they were enslaved. And so one of the things that we try to that we've really tried to emphasize in this project is to emphasize the the daily human lived lives of the people who were enslaved. Right. I think often we people want to focus on the sins of the fathers, so to speak. And it's important for us to to uncover all of that and to make sure all of that information is clear and transparent. But we often miss the kind of work that really humanizes and talks about the day-to-day experiences of people who were married and raising families and 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 raising children and going to church and doing all of those everyday ordinary things. So Jonathan, could you um, maybe just pick out one story from one of those lives that has really stuck with you while you do the, as you've done this research? So the one story that sticks out for me is actually not about one life, but about the the group of people who were working um, early on in the history of enslaved people here at at in St. Louis, and um, they called one of the one of the the fathers Napoleon. And when someone from the outside came to to journal it, they noted down that the enslaved people called this guy Napoleon, hmm. and um, registered it as a compliment, which to my mind is just absolutely hilarious to to think that (laughs) this group of people would call someone Napoleon as a compliment. And it also suggests to me that that lets you know that the the lives of enslaved people were not disconnected from um, current events and, and world history and politics. Because I think if you were an enslaved person especially right west of the Mississippi, early part of the the 19th century, you would have heard about Toussaint and Haiti. And Mm -hmm. so the idea that you would call someone Napoleon as a compliment um, is just kind of hilarious to me, but it suggests that there's a deep sense of irony and a full awareness of their lives as global citizens, right? Not even just as... um, people who were enslaved in the U.S. And I think for me, this is the kind of thing that we should begin to um, accept and recognize about the lives of people who were enslaved. And and that way we begin to see them as full human beings and not simply victims and objects in a system like slavery. The project is Slavery, History, Memory, and Reconciliation. And I imagine that reconciliation has a lot of bearing on what happens today. Could you talk a little bit about, you've reached out to descendants of some of the enslaved people, correct? Yes. So that part of it is also about memory and history. So as a, as an American, as a black American who's descended from enslaved people, the thing that happens to me when I try to do my own um, family history is that I run into an 1870 wall, especially on my father's side of the family. I haven't figured out a way to to find anything out about my ancestors on that side before 1870, because that's the first um, census where where Black Americans are included as citizens. So what we've done with this project is to actually give uh, a few families, a few Black families, some access to a longer history of their people. So as I mentioned, in 2016, we only knew the first names of six people. And the fact that we are have been able with our researchers to find those surnames and then to draw connections 
to people who are living in St. Louis today is absolutely monumental. And for people, um, for most of the descendants that we've had the opportunity to talk with, um, there's been real positive appreciation of the kind of work that allows them to identify their family lines back to at least 1823. Can you can you talk a little bit more about that? What what the reactions have been from the descendants and what it what it means for them to to have this information? From some of them, we've gotten really direct thank yous, mm-hmm. and um, I think it's easy to underestimate what it feels like to be a person who can't. Um, make those connections beyond 1870. I think this is one way to think about reconciliation and not in a, not simply in a theological or relational dimension, but this, you know, the finding and uncovering that history is kind of like an economic and genealogical reconciliation, mm-hmm. right? So it's like we all have people who existed in 1823, but there are many of us for, for, Many of us who are descended from enslaved people, we have no way to reconcile that genealogical framework. And our project um, for a few families is beginning and continuing to do that that work. There seems to be something deeply like theological in that because this sin was shared collectively, right? Like reconciliation has to be a, a collaborative work too, right? Going off that, what are what might be say you're um, say you're uh, a young adult white Catholic listening to this podcast who maybe feels very far and removed from the legacy of slavery? Um, what would you say to what what's something that they can do to help um, contribute to this reconciliation? Because I work at a university and um, as a faculty member, I'm an African Americanist. Um, I think my answer is always going to be educate yourselves, right? So that you get a a better sense of what slavery was like for all of the people who were involved and that we break up the stereotype. It's like we we think of of enslaved people in one way and we think of slaveholders in one way. And so we're all surprised when when we encounter things that look unlike what we imagined them to look, look like. So I think the most important thing to do is to begin to do work to humanize um, all of the people who were involved in slavery. And I think that means accepting slaveholders, accepting particularly um, church leaders with their warts, and then really doing the work to humanize and amplify the the lives of, um, of the people who were enslaved. Uh, I, I would absolutely agree with that. And I think a piece of the this work has also started to appear in the way that we're trying to engage with um, Jesuit high schools in the central and southern province, um, but hopefully also other provinces as we go along uh, and doing what we can to share the information that we've been able to learn and uncover with educators and students in those institutions so that they can begin as Jonathan said, to to educate themselves and um, develop um, a deeper awareness of this history that um, those schools, in a, in many instances, 
um, benefited from this legacy of Jesuit slaveholding um, and, and continue to today. Uh, so I think that awareness raising is is really important and then thinking about how to continue to carry that forward in, in Catholic education more broadly. Yeah, that's that's really helpful for our listeners. Um, so thank you so much for joining us today. We do have one final question that we ask all of our guests. Um, if you could canonize one person, Catholic or not, living or dead, uh, who would it be and why? I think I would like to canonize my great-great-grandmother, paternal great-great-grandmother. When I first learned about her, uh, my grandmother told me her name was Harriet Griggs. And that was the that was the first time I'd heard her name. And then many years ago, I was at a family reunion, and one of my grand uncles told me that Harriet's name was Patsy Harriet Martha Keeler Wright Yoletta Kit Tequila Bonnie Clara Sarah Ann Virginia Jane Reeves Carter Griggs. <laughs> wow, that's a whole litany of saints right there. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Why did she have so many names? (laughs) um, So she was born in 1845. And I think that um, all of those names are a legacy of slavery, like of all Mm. of the places she went, all the places where people called her different names. So instead of um, just simply changing from one name to another, I think she collected those names as she went from place Mm. to place. And there were people who knew her in each of those places by one or more of those names. So her names to her names to me um, read and sound like a map and a genealogy. Yeah. So all right. I won't I try would... to repeat all those, but St. Harriet, <laughs> <laughs> what do you have, Laura? <laughs> oh my goodness. I'm not sure that I can <laughs> compare with that. Um, would it, would it be, too cliche to say someone like my mother. <laughs> no, no. Uh, I think she's um, someone who's modeled for me um, a way to be a person for others and um, is someone just who, who my entire life has modeled empathy and also instilled a sense of responsibility for working toward, toward justice, social justice, economic justice, racial justice. I admire the way that she has um, done that in conjunction with growing in her own faith, um, Catholic faith. And um, I think witnessing that growth process for her is has been something that I um, try to, to emulate and, and model myself, that it's an ongoing um ongoing process of learning for one's entire life. So, And what's your mom's name? Name is Alice. All right. (laughs) right. St. Harriet and St. Alice. Uh, Jonathan, Laura, thank you both so much for the work you're doing and for taking the time to share it with us today. Uh, Where can people find out more about the project? You can go to our website. It's shmr.jesuits.org. We're also on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Um, our handle is SHMR Jesuits. And you can email us at shmr at jesuits.org. Awesome. All right. Thank, Thank you, you so, so much. much. Thank you. Our pleasure.
curious what the idea of co-responsibility for the church's being and acting might mean for both the laity and ordained? Join us for an academic and pastoral conference at Notre Dame this March, March 4 to 6, to explore this idea further. For more details and a complete list of speakers, visit mcgrath.nd.edu slash co-responsible, all one word. All right, now it's time for some housekeeping. We have some new patrons. Yes, thank you all so much uh, for responding to the call to support the show. We can't do it without the support. And so a special shout out this week to Megan, Tanya, Ryan, Mary, and Alana. What do you get when you sign up for our Patreon page? Besides the self-satisfaction of being a wonderful Catholic. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, there's no, it's, you really can't put a price on closing your eyes knowing that you're supporting a media ministry like this. But on top of that, you get swag. We got buttons. We got stickers. We have T-shirts. You also get a uh, subscription at certain levels to America Magazine, which Ashley and I help produce during the rest of our day job. Um, and also access to an exclusive newsletter written by Ashley Ryer every single week. So you can find out about all of those things at patreon.com slash americamedia. All right, now it's time for Consolations and Desolations, the part of the show where we talk about where we found God this week and where it was harder to find God. What do you have, Zach? This week I have a consolation that came out of Mass where our parish priest is in the middle of training uh, one of the, uh, who is a deacon now. Uh, He's going to be ordained this weekend. Uh, So he's been training him on how to say Mass. And so sort of inspired by that, he this weekend was sort of pausing at various points in the Mass explaining why we do things we do, like signing ourselves with the sign of the cross before Mass starts, or why we incense the altar before the liturgy of the Eucharist. And one spot in particular when he, before the sign of peace, just kind of paused all of us and said, you know, this is a moment where we like acknowledge in solidarity all the the act of faith that people have brought here just by showing up, right? Like you, you have no idea what people are going through uh, when they come to Mass, um, but it's probably something, right? Like everyone's got something going on. And so just that like small interjection, like really like allowed me to like look at these people in the eye and people who I might not know by name and I don't know what's going on in their life, but uh, see that God is working in their life and just have faith in that and sort of to make that present with this like touch and peace be with you, yeah. this affirmation, uh, that was my consolation this week. Other, which because otherwise it's a pretty monotonous. Like I'm just trying to roll through, like shake as many <laughs> hands as possible because I'm a golden retriever. <laughs> um, but this was brought a, a moment of reflection. Yeah, I so I went to same parish, different mass. Went to the nine a.m. Oh, and oh, and the nine. and that mm. and that actually works into my consolation as well. Um, so as we mentioned before, my dad was in town this weekend, um, and it was you know wonderful to have him here. But um, I learned when he came that he's currently uh, going through some family issues. His older brother is hospitalized, um, and my dad's his medical proxy. So while he was in New York, he was, you know, constantly on the phone with doctors um, trying to coordinate that care and, you know, making the really tough decisions that come at the end of life. And to be honest, like I wasn't really close with this uncle. So it was hard for me to like have the empathy that I think I I should have had. Mm -hmm. Um, And so like I was kind of feeling guilty about that. Um, And then at mass, as you mentioned, the priest had this you made a point of like, okay, when you do the sign of the peace, like just imagine, you you know, maybe it's a stranger, but imagine what the, the sorrows and the suffering that they're bringing to this mass. And like, I turned to my dad and I didn't have to imagine it. Like I knew what yeah. he was going through, but it hadn't really um, hit me. 
I, I don't think. And so, so in that moment, you know, I was able to like more fully like, you know, see my dad as like a man who's losing his brother, which is like I hadn't really thought deeply about before. Um, and so in that moment, I felt guilty about not really feeling that before. But I do. I think that guilt, you know, was was God calling me to like, OK, <laughs> it's not too late. You can yeah. still you can still, you know, be there in solidarity with your dad um, and, you know, try to give the emotional and spiritual support that you wish you had started giving sooner. It's not too late. That's <laughs> yeah. the most Catholic <laughs> yeah. take on guilt I've ever mm-hmm. heard. Yeah. I was so. wondering how you're going to turn the guilt into the consolation. <laughs> but that, of course, makes perfect sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. Good parish we got. Yep. Uh, lucky. Yeah. All right, Ashley, get us out of here. All right. Jesuitical is produced by Sebastian Gomes. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Faith Formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. Production help from Izzy Seneschal and Tucker Redding. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Jesuitical is recorded in the William J. Loeschert Studio at American Media in New York City. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week.